Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Galloway Law Podcast. My name is Thomas Galloway. Ian Farrell is a professor of law at the University of Denver Sturm College of Law. He specializes in criminal law and criminal procedure. We sat down yesterday to talk about a very basic topic, the best ways to handle typical encounters with the police. If you enjoy this interview and find it helpful, please subscribe and share with others. And now, to the interview. So I'd like to start today by thanking you for taking your time to come on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. To begin, uh, I'd ha- like to have you go through a little bit about what we talked about in class the other day, about when an officer can stop you, what they can ask you, and what they- when they can detain you. Great. Yeah, so um, the, the three parts of the Constitution that are relevant to this are the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, and the Sixth Amendment. Um, so starting with the Fourth Amendment, what the, what the Fourth Amendment says is that um, police or other government agents are not allowed to unreasonably search or seize you. So when we talk about detaining someone, that would be seizing the person. Right. Right? So that's an example of a seizure. And um, what the court says is that um, it's only a seizure if it's a situation where a reasonable person would not feel free to leave. Right. So... If a police officer comes up to you on the street and just asks you some questions, the court has said the average person would feel like they don't have to stay and therefore they're not being detained. Um, And so because that's not a search, it's not governed by the Fourth Amendment and therefore the police don't need any justification Mm -hmm. in order to do that. If it's a search, then it has to be reasonable and reasonable usually means um, that they need some degree of suspicion Right. that you're committing a crime, either reasonable suspicion or probable cause, which we can maybe talk about later. Right. Um, but in general, um, a police officer can do whatever any other ordinary person can do. Like, you know, if your window is open, there's, the curtains are open and they can see through your window from the street, then they're allowed to look through your window. If they, if you're standing on a street corner, they can come up and talk to you. Mm-hmm. So, so in general, they're allowed to ask you questions. Um, unless you're being detained, you don't have to, and maybe even when you're being detained, you don't have to answer the question. Right. And you mentioned in class that in Colorado, they can ask for your name and date of birth. Correct. And you are required to give it to them? Right. That's right. Is that typical in most states, or they have more a right to remain silent? Um, So so there's there's always a a right to remain silent. Okay. Um, Okay. And so in, in Colorado... If you're being detained, the, the police can insist that you give them your name and date of birth. Okay. Um, and so in terms of the advice that I give, like I, uh, as I mentioned in class, I think I worked with this organization called Lyric Colonial Rights in Colorado, and we go around to um, high schools and some middle schools and teach them what to do if they're confronted by the police and what their rights are. And so the first thing we tell them is... Um, if a police officer comes up to you and starts interacting with you, um, you won't necessarily know whether you're being detained or not, so you should ask. Right. So police officer comes up and says, hey, what are you doing here? Um, you should say, am I being detained? Right. Or am I free to leave? Either way. Yeah. And, and if they say, um, yes, you're free to leave, then you should leave. Right. Um, if you don't leave in that situation, you're giving them consent to keep you there. Okay, so even if you don't verbally like can say that you're consenting to it, you are giving consent by virtue not leaving. Correct. Okay. Right. If you say to them, "Am I free to leave?" They say yes, and you don't leave. 
you have implicitly right, consented right. to being kept there and therefore you can't argue later on that they did the wrong thing. Right, right. Yeah. When you go around to high schools and discuss these topics with students and even just the general public, what are some of the preconceived notions that people have that are completely inaccurate? Fantastic. So um, this is a great question. And so one of the things that I get asked often, even if I'm just sort of randomly meeting new people, like I remember one time uh, a few years ago when I was camping and I was camping with a group of people, some of whom I'd never met before. And when they found out what I did for a living, the first question one of them asked me was, um, so if I'm driving a car and the police pull me over and the cops ask if they can search my trunk, uh, do I have to let them? And I said, no, you don't. And he said, damn it. So I'm like, all right, I don't want to know any more information about <laughs> yeah. that. But, but that's the idea. Like the um, people generally believe that they have to do what the cops ask them to do. Right. And it's a fine line because one of the things we tell the kids all the time is um, whenever the police demand that you do something, you should do it, mm-hmm. even if they have no right to demand it. Because otherwise you might get hurt. So we say, like, if, if for instance, um, the police ask to search your bag, right, um, most people feel like saying no to that would make them look guilty, Mm. right? And if they say no, the police officer might respond by saying, what do you have to hide? And you say nothing, and then they say, well, then you won't mind me searching, right? Right. You should still say no. Um, But the pressure is there to make yourself look innocent by showing Right. Um, so there's this feeling that if the police ask to search somewhere or the, if the police say the other thing um, that there's a misconception about is um, if the police say, um, could you come down to the station with us? We'd like to ask you a few questions. Right. You can say no. Right. right. If the police knock on your door, you don't have to answer it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I uh, had a section a little later about, yeah, what happens when they come to your door is there just a, while that topic is brought mm. up, is there if there's like a reasonable person would know that the officer's at the door, is there still no obligation to answer the door? Okay. The right. The only time you are obligated to answer the door is if they have a warrant. Right. Okay. And you shouldn't answer the door or open the door until they show you the warrant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also saw something, if it's possible for them to slide the warrant exactly. the door, have exactly. them do that. Right. Yeah, yeah so um, police knock on the door, you don't have to even do anything. Right. But you could say, you know, who is it? Or they will normally say, not, not like this is the police, it's called knock and announce under Fourth Amendment okay. law. And then you say, and they say, oh, we, want, we want to ask you a few questions, can we come in? You say, do you have a warrant? If they say no, you say, well, I would rather not talk to you, goodbye. Um, if they say yes, say, you know, hold it up to the window, slide it under the door, mm-hmm. slide it through the mailbox slot. Mm-hmm. Um, there is something, though, that's a little tricky about this, and that's when it comes to ICE agents. Okay. So ICE are the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, and so they will often um, go around to detain people for deportation. Right. And... Internally in ICE, if your boss wants to, suppose I'm your boss, right, and you're the ICE agent, and so I'm going to write you a memo saying, um, you know, go go detain that, like, feral guy who's um, outstayed, he's he's not American, he's Australian, he's outstayed his visa, Um, detain him and we're going to send him back. Um, That memo that I send you is called a warrant for removal. 
That's the name they give it. So written on the top of the piece of paper that's printed out will be warrant for removal. And so they use that to try and make people think that they have an actual warrant when they don't. Right. And so an actual warrant is one that's signed by a judge. Okay. Well, besides that signature, will they look similar or it's going to be... The document itself would probably look a little different. Than yeah, the document itself looks a little bit different, but the best thing to do is look for the signature, signature at the back right, right, and see okay. whether it's signed by a judge on the back page. Right. Yeah. If you want to take a video of any encounter with the police, what are some of the best practices, I would say, in that situation? Fantastic. So, right, so, the, so there are a couple of different ways to answer that question. One is, what are your legal rights? Right. And in Colorado, you have an absolute legal right to film the police whenever they're in public. And you have that for two reasons. One is it's a First Amendment protected um, exercise. It's an exercise of free speech. Uh, And two, uh, Colorado is a single party state when it comes to recording. You don't have to have someone else's permission to record a conversation you're having with them. So you are legally entitled to record, say, on your cell phone um, what the police are doing in public. Mm. Then there's the question of when is it a good idea? It's not a good idea if you're being um, arrested by the police or even if they're engaging with you face-to-face and you suddenly have to put your hand in your pocket, like if you're sitting in your car after you've been pulled over. That's not a good idea, right, because that's when you will appear as though you're um, reaching for a weapon. Mm -hmm. So most of the defence attorneys that I've spoken with about this would say, uh, don't do it. Don't reach into a pocket at, at any point. Um, if you're engaging with the police. If, you're, if you already have your phone out, that's another matter. Mm. Um, or if you or one of your friends is viewing something from a distance away, then that's when, you, when it's really a good idea to right. start filming because you're not interfering with the police, mm. you're not making them fear that you're pulling out a weapon um, and you still get to record the encounter. Right. Um, one useful thing that you can do is there's an app that you can get from the ACLU website that directly um, sends the video in real time to the cloud so that if the police get your phone afterwards and delete the video, or or try to delete the video, they can't because it's copied on the cloud. Right, okay, yeah, that's Um, extremely helpful, yeah. Right. And then um, there are lots of instances where the police will say, stop recording or give me the damn phone. If they ask for the phone, say no. If they demand the phone, say, I'm not consenting, but, and then hand it over. Right. right? I'm, I'm not doing this voluntarily. Right. And you can have that, like, on camera. Right. Right. But, but if, if it ever gets to the point where the police are saying, like, if you don't hand that over, I'll arrest you, you should comply, but make clear that it's not voluntary, mm-hmm. that you're not consenting, you're just complying. Right. So back to the situation where a police officer comes up to you and asks for your name and your date of birth. When you, after you provide that to them, are you required to stay there until they run that information to make sure there's no warrants out for your arrest? Fantastic, right. So, so we're in a situation here where they are able to detain you. Right. And so um, under Fourth Amendment law, that means that they have reasonable suspicion mm-hmm. to believe that you've committed the crime. Right. So... Um, the example I usually give to the kids is, um, you know, I'll point to someone in the class and, and I'll say, you know, suppose that you're hanging out near a 7-Eleven, you're just around the corner, and um, the police dispatch sends out a, 
um, a report to the officers saying that there's been an armed holdup at the 7-Eleven and it's a uh, young white male, dark hair, wearing like a, a blue button-down shirt and uh, a dark blue vest, which is what you're wearing right now. Now, you're innocent, but the police, it's reasonable for them to suspect that you might be guilty because you match the description and you're in the area. So in a situation like that, they're entitled to detain you. It's called a, a Terry stop um, for a reasonable amount of time for them to figure out whether you are, in fact, guilty. And so that would include the amount of time that it would take for them to run you through the system. But they can only do that, uh, they can only insist you stay and force you to stay if they have this reasonable suspicion. Right, okay, that makes sense. And what is, based on some of the case law we have, particularly in Colorado, what is the minimum standard for reasonable suspicion? Is it something like a scenario like that? Great question. So the, I would say the, the minimum standard, um, I, I can give you a couple of examples. Right. So um, one example is um, the police are in what they call a high crime area, so right. an area that's known for, um, for, for drugs, right. which purely as a coincidence just happens to often be where um, poor people and people of minority are, are, are um, disproportionately living. So there's a case in which uh, the police pull up and they see this guy leave a building, an apartment building, that is known as a crack house. Mm -hmm. And he makes eye contact with the police and changes direction and walks away. That's enough. Right. That's enough for reasonable suspicion according to the US Supreme Court. Right. Okay, yeah, it's pretty, right. pretty low. Yeah. Um, uh, the other classic example is if you're in, again, a high crime area... And you see the police and run, hmm. then that's enough. And that could be enough, yeah. Right. Certainly. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and that's worth keeping in mind when, if you have an encounter with the police and the police, and you say, am I free to leave? And they say, yes, don't run, just walk away. Mm -hmm. not carefully and calmly. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So moving a little bit to traffic stop, mm. touching that for a second ago, uh, what what should you do right when you're being pulled over? What is just sort of the best practices? Yeah, so um, hands where they can be seen. Right. Um, and then um, you are required, if, if there's a traffic stop, to hand over your license, registration, and insurance details. But other than that, you don't have to say anything. Right. right? And so uh, it's fairly common for an officer to say, um, do you know why I pulled you over? Mm. And a lot of people say, yeah, I guess I was speeding. You just confessed. Right. right? Don't confess. Yeah. So that's one good rule. Don't right. confess. Right. Um, the other is don't consent to a search. Mm. And so, again, the police may say something like, um, I can I see your license, registration, and insurance? And you, you have to give them that. Right. And then they say, can you pop the trunk for me? You don't have to do that. Right. Right? But the way the police ask that and the sequence that they've asked it in, they've asked you for three things that you don't have a choice about mm -hmm. and then added on something that you do have a choice about and asked in exactly the same way, most people feel like they have to open the trunk. With that, yeah. um, now, I mean, uh, you may think that if you've done nothing wrong, then um, you may feel like it's fine to, to let them search. Um, you may feel like that's a better option than 
you know, having a tense encounter where the police are now suspicious of you and asking you what you have to hide and things like that. But it's worth bearing in mind that um, you don't know what the cops are looking for, right? right? So to go back to our earlier, earlier example, suppose you're in the car and you're driving, um, you're not wearing your vest anymore, it's in the trunk, right? right? So they pull you over, um, you don't yet match exactly the description of the person they're looking for, but then they say, can, we, can you pop the trunk? You open the trunk, they see the vest in there, now they might think you're the guy, right? right? So even though you're innocent, the police may find something um, that they they think makes you look suspicious. And I think it's worth people in positions where, like, as, um, like, you know, white white men who either have a law degree, in my case, or are going to law school, we're in a pretty privileged position in the way that we interact with the police. Mm -hmm. And so my view is it's worth just forcing the police to like not overstep their boundaries so that they um, treat other people that way as well. Right, right. Yeah. Is there a certain amount of time period within when the police officer sees an offending mm-hmm. act to when they can pull you over? Is there a... Uh, Rami, who I sit next to in class, an example of him uh, turning a little too far into the one lane yep. and then between five and ten minutes later he was pulled over for that action. Is that... Typical is that is that allowed? So that's I would say it's probably not typical, but it is allowed. It is allowed. Okay, right. Yeah. yeah. There there is no time limit on, um, you know, you see someone um, involved in illegal activity, you don't have to, for instance, arrest them within a certain period of time. Right. Um, now it is interesting that um, if you think about the kinds of things that the police are legally entitled to pull you over for. Mm-hmm. Um, they can pull over pretty much anybody. Um, so police sometimes, um, when um, colleagues of mine have gone on ride-alongs with police, they play a game in which the police say, the uh, officer says, you know, point to any car on the road and um, within five minutes I'll have a reason to pull them over. Because, you know, you, you're driving too close to the car in front of you. Um, right. You went over the speed limit a little bit. You... Um, change lanes but didn't indicate until you were already starting to change lanes. You um, you were swerving a little bit within your lane. Right. Like there are so many things that yeah. we do as drivers that are technically violations right. um, that would give someone reasonable suspicion to pull you over. Right. Uh, if an officer had, if you've consented to the search or yep. they have already searched, what are they allowed to seize from your vehicle? So, um, so you have consented to them searching. Right. Um, anything that they see that they have probable cause to believe is evidence of a crime, they can seize. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, discussing when police are at your front door, we talked about earlier about you do not have to answer the door. Uh, if uh, and then I had a if a guest answers the door, they under any obligation to um, tell the officer that you're home or no. So, so the scenario is you're at home with a guest. Right. The police are, for whatever reason, looking for you. Right. Right. So um, you send out your buddy to open the door because you're like, I don't want the cops to see me, right? Yeah. Um, and so you send your mate out and so the mate opens the door. Um, that person, if, and if the police say, um, you know, um, is such and such home, you don't have to answer. Right, so so this gets to the right to silence. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, the law is a little unclear about what the police can insist 
you answer if you're being detained. Mm-hmm. But if they um, knock on the door, one, you don't have to let you don't have, to have anyone answer, right? right? Um, and you know, if through the closed door, so ideal scenario was the door is closed and your your friend goes up to the door and says, uh, "What do you want?" And they say, "We want to speak to such and such. Is he here?" Um, you can say, um, "I don't want to answer that question. I choose to remain silent. I don't want don't want to talk to you." Um, do you, or, or simply, they say, "Is your is your friend here? Do you have a warrant?" Right. And if they say no, then say, "Well, um, I'd rather not talk to you. Have a nice day." Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So I'd like to talk a little bit about the mechanisms for monitoring the police. Yep. And we talked in class the other day about the personal, the body cams and how that creates an incredible amount of video to store and the complications that come along with that. What what are some of the typical monitoring mechanisms that your average police department, some of them, you know, ranging from not having as much money to spend on things like that? Yeah, so um, dash cameras are, are fairly ubiquitous now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and body cameras are also um, becoming more common. Uh, there have been studies that suggest that, um, contrary to what people, some people expected, including me actually, um, they don't change police behaviour. So you would imagine that um, a police officer who knows that the body cam is on will um, be hesitant to do something he knows is wrong. Right. It turns out not so much. Right. Um, it does, however, provide um, more evidence. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot more evidence available. Um, I have spoken to, like a friend of mine, I think I mentioned this in class, is a um, general counsel for a sheriff's department. And his view is that um, dash cams are preferable to body cams in any event because they give a, a wider view of the scene and you're able to see a lot more of what's going on. Right. Um, but body cameras are getting pretty common, although it's... Um, a striking number of times uh, the body cameras seem to be malfunctioning or were accidentally turned off just before the encounter in question. Other than that, it's a lot of reliance on um, uh, citizen complaints. Mm -hmm. And uh, here in Denver, um, there's now an office of the independent monitor. So there's a separate um, civilian authority that um, monitors the police and... um, uh, they're the people you can contact when you have complaints and so on. Right. Is there ins- any insight into why the body cams haven't changed police behavior dramatically? Um, I don't know the psychology behind it, but my my guess would be that it's like, I mean, like whenever you watch like reality TV shows, like people just get used to the camera being on yeah, yeah. and then revert to their normal selves. Right. 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 Like the some of the things you see people do on camera, you're like. They knew the camera was there. Yeah, why they did that. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Now, an- another issue that's sort of s- related to all of this um, and another thing that we teach the kids about is um, when you're being interrogated by the cops, mm-hmm. right? So that's the sort of Miranda warnings kind of situation. Right. Um, and one of the things that's really striking when um, interacting with the kids is they can all recite the Miranda warnings, right? right? You have the right to remain TV, silent. TV, right? yeah. Yeah, TV and, and movies, like you... Uh, anything you say can be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. So everybody kind of knows those rights. Right. But then they all waive those rights. So 80% of adults and 90% of youth waive their Miranda rights. 
and answer the police questions when it's a good idea in literally 0% of the time. Right. And that probably gets back to people seem like they feel like they're guilty if they're exactly. answering questions. Right. Yeah. right. Yeah, especially for, I feel like, younger kids, too. That'd be your immediate instinctive response would be to think, oh, they think I'm, think I'm guilty now. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. No, and, and that's certainly something that, that law enforcement um, uh, put pressure on. Right. And I was, I was speaking a couple of years ago to a, um, a professor at um, Arizona, sorry, Ohio State Law School who was a former federal prosecutor, and he described his interview technique to me. And his interview technique was um, he would come in with his uh, partner um, and um, he would have a file full of evidence. And he'd say, all right, they call it show and tell, right? So he'd say, here's all the evidence we have against you. Right? Here's the receipts that show you bought the stuff. Here's um, the information from uh, the, the toll road that shows that your car went past at this time. Here's, so here's all the evidence that makes us think you're guilty. Right? We've got a case. Right? We put this before a jury. They'll conclude you're guilty within 10 minutes. Right? Everything here adds up to you being guilty. Right. Right? So as things now stand, we think you did it. But we're open-minded people. Right? Um, maybe there's an explanation we haven't seen. Now is your opportunity to give us your side of the story, right? You have the opportunity right now to tell us what actually happened and why you're not, in fact, as guilty as this folder full of evidence suggests. Mm-hmm. Now, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney. If you can't afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. So you can, um, you can invoke that right, but then you won't, you'll, you'll give up your chance to tell us your side of the story. So sign here if you want to waive your rights. And so everybody signs. Right. Because in that moment, you think, well, I can only, like, here's my chance to get out of it. Defend myself, yeah. Right, yeah. right. But you should never talk until there's a lawyer. Right, right. I'd like to finish by asking a couple questions about Australia and the difference between okay. our legal systems. Yeah. You mentioned in class how we tend to prefer juries in the U.S., and whereas Australia tend to prefer a judge. Yep. What are some other the primary differences between our two legal systems? So I think the the one of the primary differences in um, the Australian criminal justice system versus the U.S. is that um, none of our prosecutors are elected, okay, um, and none of our judges are elected. Right. So so there is, I think, less of a pressure to be tough on crime and and. Uh, big on law and order by both judges and prosecutors because um, here there's the fear that if you're seen as soft on crime, um, either as a judge or a prosecutor, you'll be kicked out of the next election. So that's one difference. Um, Another difference is in uh, the punishment. Mm -hmm. And so um, these figures aren't up to date, but a few years ago I looked at the, um, uh, the statistics on incarceration in Australia and the average prison time for murder mm-hmm. was about 14, 14 years, 14.3 or something like that. Um, whereas in the US it's, you know, life or the death penalty and so on. Uh, so that's, a, that's another difference. Um, probably the main difference overall between the US system and the Australian system is that even though we have a written constitution like you guys do, and unlike the UK, right, the UK has no written constitution, um, 
we have a written constitution, we have a federal system like you guys, we have a, a list of enumerated powers for the federal executive and legislature and so on and so forth. What we don't have is a Bill of Rights. Right. So there are no express rights in the Australian Constitution. Okay. And so we do have similar things, like there are rules that the police have to follow, right. but those all come from um, legislature legislation rather than the constitution itself. Right, yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome. Perfect. Cheers. If you'd like to learn more about Professor Farrell's work, you can visit the link in the description below.